Well, welcome to Grace. It's good to have you here. If you're visiting us for the very first time, I want to welcome you. I am Nathan. I'm the, the pastor here at Grace, but I'm not the one that's speaking today. Uh, we have a guest speaker here today, Dr. Barry Corey. That is Dr. Barry Corey, the president of Biola University. Don't you wish you could have done that to your president of your college? I mean, that would have been nice. Uh, but uh, he let his students do that to, to him. Some of you might not be familiar with Biola. Biola was launched in 1908 by the president of then Chevron and two pastors. And it was not Biola when it was first launched. It was the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, B-I-O-L-A. So Biola stuck, and that's how we know it as... Biola. Biola is about an hour west on the 91 freeway, and we have two illustrious alumni from Biola University, the first of which is our pastor emeritus, Brian Smith. He graduated from Talbot, which is the seminary that's attached to Biola, and also, even more illustrious, Pastor Chuck graduated from one class <laughs> at Biola University. And so we're glad that Dr. Barry would come and visit us. Biola has uh, over 6,000 students, almost 50 majors, um, 80 concentrations, and still, though, just one president. So he's been presiding for the last 13 years. Would you please welcome to Grace Community Church, Dr. Barry Corey. Thank you, Pastor Nathan. It's good to be here. Um, this is my first time here at this church, and just um, Paul and I are blessed to be here, so thank you. And you've got a great pastor, by the way. He's talked to him a little bit ahead of time, and I just feel like you've got the kind of shepherd that this church needs and many church needs, so thank you for your good leadership in so many ways. Yes. <laughs> that video that you saw um, was featured one of our graduates named Zach King, and if you're younger, you know who Zach King, he's like this social media phenom with 22 million Instagram followers, and I know it sounds like I'm name dropping. George Bush once told me never to be a name dropper, so <laughs> that's about as funny as I'm going to get today, so get used to it. Yeah, Bible started in 1908 down in the corner of Hope and 6th Street in downtown Los Angeles, and um, as, um, as Pastor Nathan just shared with you, uh, we started as a Bible Institute of Los Angeles, B-I-O-L-A, and uh, we moved 50 years ago to the suburbs of La Mirada uh, because we outgrew the downtown campus, and so the L.A. and Biola doesn't fit anymore because we're in La Mirada, not Los Angeles, and, and we were once an institute when we started, and the I became a, a Bible college, then became a college, then in 1982 became a university, so the I doesn't really work anymore either. The O of of Los Angeles, it should be an N now for near Los Angeles because we're not of Los Angeles anymore. So we're actually, the I-O-L-A are kind of long gone. But the B, isn't, the B is still at the heart of who we are. Um, we do take God's word seriously as a major comprehensive university. So whether you're majoring in, in film production or pre-med or accounting, you, 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 you actually minor in biblical studies at Biola. So we feel that God's word um, still matters um, today. Um, and by the way, that, that picture was a long time ago. Let me just say that, yeah. You're probably thinking like, this is like his older brother up there today. It doesn't look like him. So we need to get some new photos taken or something. Um, it was a long time ago. We started, um, started 13 years ago, moved from Boston to Los Angeles. Uh, we're a big Red Sox family. Mm. Um, but you're getting more and more Red Sox at the Dodgers, so you might as well be a Dodgers family, you know. Um, but um, when I think about how, how fast time has gone by, I, I remember not long after we came here, I was taking our son Sam to school. He was in third grade or something, and he was hauling in a big heavy backpack into the car. And I was going like, Sam, when I was your age, I didn't, like, I didn't have a heavy backpack like that to carry to school. And he said, well, Dad, there's a lot more history now. Um, <laughs> so whatever, okay. I think I know what he meant. But um, I am so... Um, yeah, I, I, I think about what this world is like these days, and I think about it as I get up in the morning um, and 
serve in this university that's been around for a long time, over 100 years. And some of the challenges that we're facing today certainly weren't challenges that our founders envisioned um, back in 1908. They certainly were what my predecessor had to face, um, who was president for 25 years before I came in 2007. Because the world is actually, I think, it's, it's, it's more challenging now. Um, there are sharper tongues, sharper elbows, sharper edges than ever before. And when I think about this at a place like Biola, with our 6,000 students, 6,000 little Christs, as C.S. Lewis calls them, and calls you, how do we, how do we navigate uh, in this world um, that seems to be like, like more divisive and angrier and uh, more polarized and... Um, more lopsided than ever before. Not just in media, we certainly hear it there, not just in politics, and we see it there as well, but in universities, it's the, it's the same way. People talking about each other more than to each other, uh, and it's even true in the local church. And this is the world we're in, so um, I was thinking of if, if I could like bumper sticker what I feel like would be a good antidote to what's wrong with the world today, I would put it in um, four words, and those four words would be firm center, soft edges. And I think you n- probably understand what I mean. By firm center, I mean that, that we are rock solid on truth, and truth as revealed in God's trustworthy word, that that matters to us today as God's people, that we have a grounding, we have a center, uh, we have this core of what we believe on, this foundation of the way God intended things to be, of his created order, of the redemptive work of Christ, and, and so much is revealed of how we live in Scripture. And even in a way that's, that's maybe um, out of vogue uh, with the cultural moment that we're in, that we shouldn't give up on that firm center because this is the solid rock on which we stand. But the same is true with soft edges. And by soft edges, I I mean leading with humility and leading with grace and leading with kindness. And uh, I think about how this church embodies both. I mean, as you hear God's word preached by Pastor Nathan and others, modeled by Pastor Brian before him, you know, week in and week out, that's central to Grace Community Church. But also, as your first name implies, that This is a place of grace. Uh, The soft edges, um, the leading with the radical love of Christ that our world needs to see in us. And I've been thinking about the whole nature of of kindness lately. What does kindness really mean uh, in God's word? And I actually, I wrote a book about kindness, um, not the book about kindness. This is actually the book about kindness, what it's worth. But I, I wrote a book and it's a limited first edition. It's limited they didn't only printed so many. First edition, I'm not sure there's gonna be a second edition. So uh, take that as it will. And, and as I've thought about kindness, I've, I began to discover that embedded in scripture are some pretty powerful and remarkable stories of extraordinary kindness. And you take David, for instance. David, you know, is the king. Uh, David is the, uh, the, the warrior, David, the poet, right, wrote all those psalms. David, the sharpshooter who slayed Goliath. David, the leader with his oratory skills. Um, he was a harpist. Um, you know, he had, he had it all. He was the most interesting man in the world. Um, this, is, this is David. And, and we often think about David in this way, but we don't often think about David in one of the... Um, overlooked virtues that he embodied and that is the virtue of kindness this tender kindness demonstrated to the least likely at all and the story as you might remember is that David had a predecessor his name was Saul Saul was the king and the story is told in 2nd Samuel and Saul was um Saul started off pretty good, but after a while just became kind of obsessed with his own leadership um, and paranoid about others that might be a threat to his kingdom. And uh, the one threat that began to emerge was this shepherd boy who was this rising 
hero in Israel because he had basically taken Goliath, the enemy, the, the symbol of the Philistines, he had taken him down. And as powerful as Saul was, he began to see that David was becoming powerful as well. And Saul was not secure in who he was. He actually raged with envy when he heard that little ditty sang by the, um, sung by the, by the Israelites, Saul has slain his thousands, David is tens of thousands. That doesn't make a king feel that great, frankly. And uh, he began to become like really nervous about David. Even in a passive-aggressive kind of way, he would, he would praise him with soothing words at one moment and then he'd be... Um, throwing a spear towards David the other moment. He would um, ask him to come in and sing to him, and then next thing you know, he is having his armies trying to hunt David down. Well, as the story goes, eventually David rises to power. Saul is killed. Saul's son, Jonathan, who's David's friend, is also killed in that same battle. And back in the day, there was a, a way in which kingdoms worked, and that is if, if a new kingdom comes into power, the king would ignore the previous kingdom, the previous dynasty, the previous royalty, right? Ignore them, at, at a minimum ignore them, but, but more likely than not, they would try to destroy them. Completely obliterate any remnant of the previous power so that your own kingdom wouldn't be threatened by an emerging leader from the previous kingdom. That's just kind of the way kingdoms worked in those feudal days. So if anybody should have been frightened, it was a young boy, actually a young man, older boy. Um, his name was Mephibosheth, three H's in one name, go figure, right? And Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. Saul was the nemesis, the arch enemy of David, the one who wanted to kill David. He was a son of Jonathan, and he was disabled. He was lame in both feet. He was disabled because when his father and grandfather were killed, his nurse holding him was running out of the palace, and when she ran, she tripped and fell, dropped this young boy, and at that moment, he became a crippled child, and he grew up palsied in both legs. So, Here's the last living remnant of Saul's kingdom. What many kings would want to do would be just like, let's take out one more. But listen to the tender story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 3 to 11. And one day David asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? There's that word. Ziba, he was a steward of Saul. Answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir. So David had him brought to him. When Mephibosheth, son of Je uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for this crippled young man and, and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. God, this is your word. Um, enlighten us by it, we pray in your name. So you get the story, right? Here's Mephibosheth, this lame, orphaned grandson of the enemy of David, um, fearing for his life, wondering what's gonna happen to him. And then there's David. David had actually written a psalm that said, how precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. And he wrote that because he had experienced God's loving kindness, 
And so I can only imagine that that loving kindness that he experienced, he wanted to, to pay it forward and show it to someone else. And so he found the least likely one to show it to because Mephibosheth had everything going against him. His grandfather was the one who sought to kill David. He was an orphan. His father and, best we know, his mother were out of the picture and were gone. He was disabled, crippled in both feet. And on top of that, his parents gave him the name of Phibosheth, which is actually a, kind of a drag, right? So here's this, this, this young man that is fearful. He's living about 100 miles away from the palace where King David is. And then King David says to his men, go find him and bring him back to me. I, I have no idea what it was like uh, when there was a knock on that door. The door of Makir's house where this little boy was, this young man was, 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 was hunkered down and, and in hiding. And it was uh, the king's men. And they said to Mephibosheth, the king wants to see you. And so that was a long couple of days traveling from where he was to the palace where King David was. And then came the moment when this young man was brought before the king. I don't know how he got in there. I don't know if he was carried in or if he limped in or came in on crutches, but there he stood before King David, the enemy of his grandfather, wondering what his fate would be. And standing there, I can only imagine crookedly he waited to hear the first words that came out of David's mouth and this is what he heard don't be afraid Mephibosheth you'll always eat at my table and this young crippled boy didn't know what to do imagine he bowed down unworthily and said to David, like, how would you notice this dead dog like me? I deserve absolutely nothing, and you're telling me I can eat at your table? David had every right to open up his table to whoever he wanted to open it to, right? He's a king. Kings can do that. And, and you'd think, okay, well, let's bring the family around. They deserve to eat at my table. Let's bring some nobles, some officials, maybe the wealthy residents of our community, maybe our allies who are standing with us who can make us stronger, but no. Instead, he opens up his table to the grandson of his enemy, this young man named Mephibosheth, this parentless, crippled boy. And it says that he didn't just invite him to eat a meal. But he said, I want you to eat like every meal, every day, every year for the rest of your life at my table. And this is pretty remarkable, isn't it? And he even says to Mephibosheth, I'm going to treat you like one of my own sons. He actually brings this boy who feels himself utterly unworthy of receiving the loving kindness of David and, and David invites him to his table. This is that radical kindness that Scripture talks about. That David, who ex experienced the grace of God in his own life, thought, if I've experienced it, I've got to live it too. So I have been thinking a lot about kindness, what this word kindness means in this day and age, and how, how, what it's like for us. How do we live kindly? And it's easy to be kind when you stop at Starbucks and you ask for your tall Americano hot, and within minutes you get your tall Americano hot. Barista gives it to you, and you're kind. You say, thank you for giving it to me just the way I want it. Of course, you're going to be kind when they got your order right. And kindness is easy when there's harmony in our families, when we're getting along. Kindness is easy in our echo chambers with groups of people we like to hang out with us. And, 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 and they, they vote like us and they think like us and they look like us and they believe like we do. That's where kindness is easy. But kindness is a lot harder when there's tension in your family, frankly. Kindness is more difficult for those that you have judged or condemned or 
alienated or ignored or gotten on your last nerve. That's a difficult dimension of, of kindness. Kindness is much harder with those that you deeply, deeply disagree with or people that you feel like, 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 like they're on the other side of the issues. They are kind of unworthy in a Mephibosheth kind of way of any attention that I should give them. That's where, like, for me, that's where kindness hits home. So kindness really isn't just a, like the thing we do. According to scripture, kindness is really the way we live. And we don't just live kindness, we love kindness. That's what the prophet meant in Micah 6.8. When he gives us that three-part formula of how we, God's people, are to conduct our lives and we do it this way. We do justice and we love kindness. We often say love mercy, but it actually literally means you love kindness and you walk humbly with your God. And you think, well, of those three, it seems like loving kindness would be the easiest of the three. And it is easy when we're with the familiar. It is easy when we're those that we like to be kind to. It is easy when we are in communities of those who are of similar backgrounds and are treating us nicely. I mean, that's, that's the difference. And by, by kindness, what I mean is a lot different than niceness. Kind and nice are two very different words. Um, we gotta stop telling our kids to be nice and start telling them to be kind, by the way. Tell them the difference between the two. Niceness is a weak word. It's a kind of a spineless word. It doesn't really have much meaning at all. I did a word search uh, through the Bible and I, I actually couldn't find the word nice there. Nice, niceness, it's nowhere in scripture. But if you do a word search on kind, kindness, kind-heartedness, loving kindness, it is all over the Bible. It is a word that is, it's it's rooted in, in kind of biblical truth. It's been lived out by followers of Jesus for millennia now, as hard as it is sometimes. They've lived that profoundly radical God-shaped kind life. It's forged on like solid Christian theology. It is really what we are supposed to do. And, and, and kindness is, is more than, a, um, it's more than a, a random act. So let's say David went to Mephibosheth and said, um, I'm gonna give you a meal. And I want you to eat at my table and have supper there tonight. That would have been a great that random act of kindness, but that, that wasn't what he did. He didn't say tonight. He said every night, every day, every meal. So, so kindness isn't this, this random act. And I love random act of kindness. I mean, I, you know, when you take out your neighbor's trash, right, because she's elderly, or you see a family at a restaurant, and you say, like, let's buy their dessert for them, and they'll never know who it was, or... You know, you tell your friend like she has spinach in her teeth. Whatever, you know, whatever your random act of kindness is. At Biola, I try to like, like be kind to people that I see. And students who may be having a hard day or give them a fist pump, high five, walking down the sidewalk, ask them how they're doing. Not long ago, somebody put this Facebook page up. It said, today, DBC, president of Biola University, put his hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eyes and asked me, how am I doing? He smelled like flowers, though. This dog's aroma made me feel like, dang, I'm a B-OK. <laughs> Wink. I'm struggling, but I can do it just saying. <laughs> really? Like, what is he just saying? I actually didn't know. I thought, like, he smells like flowers. This dog's aroma. I didn't know like, what smell I was, right? And so I actually had to find a millennial and say, like, like, what, like what does that mean? <laughs> I said, well, that means it's, it's a good thing. I said, you sure? He said, yeah, it's good. I said, okay, I'm cool with that. Then it's good. All right, so I'll take it. <laughs> These are random acts. Serving a meal to Mephibosheth is a random act, but, but kindness 
in the way scripture portrays it is not a random act, it's a radical life. It's this countercultural way of living because call, God calls you to be kind whether you are accepted or not. And that's the, that's the key. That's what makes it different than a kind of this, this human side of kindness that I want to live, being kind so people think more highly of me. When I, was, when I was a kid, I had a front row seat to kindness. It was my father who was a preacher, small framed Canadian that had a radical encounter with Jesus when he was 16 years old. And like he, after that, he, like, he couldn't help but, but kind of live out that Jesus love within him. And that was great for him, but it was actually awkward for me. So when, when he would pull up to the gas station, and back in the day when they, they would put the gas in for you, right? And they'd fill up his tank and check his oil, and then my father would get out and actually would hug the Islamic gas station attendant and say, I, I really appreciate you. Thank you for helping me out today. And I'd sit in the back seat of our Pontiac Bonneville and just like slink down, like when like dads don't do that. Went to the uh, cobbler. This old Armenian man with wrinkled face and naughty knuckles and shoe polish all over his fingernails. And my father would say to this man, hey, can I pray for you? And he would reach across the counter and my father would hold his hands and they'd, stand there and pray. And I'd be at the door of the store praying too, right, that no one come in, catch them in the act of praying with each other. It was awkward for me as a child when he did this. And one time he had the gall to go up. This was like the, the clincher for me. He went up to Reuben. Reuben was a furniture merchant in Worcester, Massachusetts. Where we grew up at the local you know, office supply store. And one day he walked up to Reuben. I, I saw it coming. I just go, oh, here, here he goes again. He goes up to Reuben and he grabs Reuben's face in his hands and says, Reuben, I love you. I'm going, oh, dads don't do that. I can't believe you just did that. I want to run out of the store, crawl under a desk or something. And uh, Reuben just like kind of froze. <laughs> and I remember so many times that my father was that day that he would, you know, get the, the silent treatment or people would walk away or make a rude comment or give him the cold shoulder, whatever. And he didn't care. He just kind of kept on doing it. And I often felt for him the, um, the rejection he never seemed to feel for himself. As a little boy, it would just be hard for me to see him act that way and even when people received it and especially when people didn't. A couple decades later, I was in my mid to late 20s. I had moved to Bangladesh to do some research there for children of the landless poor and I was working with a pretty large organization Part of that reason why I went there was just to kind of find myself. I was in a bit of a funk in my life. And, and uh, my father happened to be in India and came to see me for a few days. And I remember only a, one thing about the few days he was there, and that is a morning that we went for a walk. Dhaka is the capital of Bangladesh, arguably the most congested city in the world. And not just congested, but, but like profoundly poor. So Beggars coming up to you regularly, rickshaws in the street, crowded, trash strewn everywhere, families foraging through dumpsters for something to eat, for have food for the day, and, and, and we walked through these streets, and I was trying to make sense of all of that as a 20-something-year-old. And this one particular day, my father said to me something I'll not forget. He said, Jesus says something in Matthew chapter 10 about you know, picking up your cross and following me but he said immediately after that, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He said this to them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. My father never went to seminary, never graduated from Bible college. So he said, I, I don't really fully understand what Jesus meant there. But this I do know that whoever comes across my path, I'm gonna make myself receivable. For how will they know the love of Christ? How will they know the grace of God unless they receive me first? And it was that moment that all came back to me, like my life flashed before my eyes, hugging the Islamic gas station attendant, praying with the old Armenian cobbler, holding Reuben's face in his hand and telling him he loved him. My father wasn't being weird. He was being receivable. 
He told me that day, he said, nowhere does Jesus ever say you're going to be received. He just simply says you make yourself receivable. Some people receive it. Some people won't. And your calling as a disciple is to make yourself receivable. It's crazy because I don't like to live that way. I want to be received. When I'm kind to someone, and I try to be that way, I want them to put a Facebook post about it. I want someone to say thank you. I want the kindness returned back to me in even more generous ways than I even gave it out. And I want people to feel more highly of me because I'm that way. But a gospel-shaped kindness isn't that way. Kindness is not about being appreciated. It's about being obedient. Regardless of how the response comes your way. And speaking of that Facebook posting, it's actually not that far off theologically when that person I met on the sidewalk says about me, smells like flowers though, this dog's aroma. Because Paul says in one of his letters that you are the aroma of Christ. To some you're the smell of life, to others you're the smell of death. Some people are gonna like your Jesus smell and some people aren't. But that doesn't change the fact that you gotta keep on giving off that Jesus aroma wherever you go. That's the difficult part of kindness, living out of this deeply felt biblical conviction of this is what I believe God has called me to do and you lead in a way that looks like the love of Christ. And it's hard. It's hard especially with those that you might be imagining now in your mind that are really hard to be kind to. A couple years ago, there was some new legislation that was introduced in the state of California. Some of you might remember it. It was against faith-based colleges in this state. 15 or 20 of us of the 85 private colleges and universities in the state of California that are faith-based uh, institutions, uh, Christian liberal arts colleges and universities, Bible is one of them, many others, Westmont, Cal Baptist, Point Loma, APU, on and on it goes. And um, when this legislation was introduced, it basically was saying that any school that holds, to, holds a certain sexual ethics that are out of sync with kind of the political momentum, out of sync with the, the culture of the state, um, there needs to be laws against these schools that make their, frankly, make their business models unsustainable. So we were like freaking out when this came our way. We didn't know how to respond. We didn't know what it was going to do. This, you know, state of California is a very powerful state. We're a nation. It would be the sixth largest economy in the world. I mean, this is like, and we were like just a handful of Christian colleges trying to do our thing. And uh, when all of this happened, the bill finally did pass, but it lost some of its um, severity in the last minute. But when it did pass, um, we were told, by those in Sacramento, this is just the beginning. There are gonna be harsher and more severe bills that are gonna be coming, even that year, which was the 16-17 year. Um, one of the key proponents behind these bills was a young up-and-coming lawmaker who authored one of the bills. He chaired the LGBT caucus uh, in Sacramento, and he refused to meet with any of us. It's a difficult time. He was actually, in my mind, I considered him public enemy number one, frankly. And um, I was going to go up to Sacramento in August of that year to try to like talk to the few lawmakers that I knew to say, "Hey, can you help with this law a little bit? Because it doesn't really, it doesn't seem fair." For lots of reasons, I could spend a lot of time explaining. And the day before I went up to Sacramento, it was the month of August. I got a text message from a friend of mine in L.A. And he said, hey, if you're ever in Sacramento, he didn't know I was going the next day. He said, there are a couple of lawmakers I'd like you to meet. And he mentioned two of them, and one of the two he mentioned was, was Evan Lowe. Evan Lowe, public enemy number one. The one who wrote that bill, Assembly Bill 1888, which was just, it was gonna be our undoing. 
And I texted my friend Daniel back and said, Daniel, I'll, I'll, I'll meet with one of them, but I'm not gonna meet with the other one because he won't meet with us. We've tried and, and he's got basically a force field around his office and won't engage a conversation with any of us. He texted me back. He said, your appointment's at 4.30 tomorrow. So I said, okay, here we go. I actually didn't feel that great all day um, because I had to go into his office and hear what he had to say and I had heard already what he had to say. I just didn't want to hear it face to face. So I went into his office and he was more welcoming than I thought he was going to be. I think partly because he couldn't believe he and I had a, same, a shared friend. And we talked for about 30 minutes at the end of the conversation. When I went in there, I actually said, I decided to take this approach. I said, um, Assembly Member Lowe, um, Barry Corey, Viola, um, and I just want to listen to you, hear what's behind you know, the bill and what your intentions are. And um, that kind of diffused it a little bit. Um, but at the end of the conversation, I said something else. I said, would you ever come to Biola? He paused for a minute. I know his legislative aides who are in the room, they were shaking their heads no. But he said, okay, I'll come. And three months later, he came, met with, he brought a few others, met with our, some of our students, some faculty, some staff. At the end of the day, we decided we are gonna have a dinner together. And we sat down and talked for four hours. And I learned that day that um, it's better to start by talking across a table rather than shouting across the street. And sometimes breaking bread begins to break down barriers. We talked again not long after that. A few months later, he and I co-wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post entitled, We First Battled Over LGBT and Religious Rights. Here's how we became unlikely friends. And in that article, this is what one of the things that we said. Our nation needs to rediscover the inherent strength of its pluralistic diversity, where the dignity and perspectives of everyone matter, and where we don't have to agree in order to affirm that we are all in this together. A strong and vibrant democracy allows for diverse visions of human flourishing, but it need not be a zero-sum game. Rather, what if we listen to each other more in order to focus on where our visions overlap toward a better state, a better nation? The two of us can attest to the fact that relationships don't need to be built on 100% agreement in order to be fruitful, but they do need to be built on listening, kindness, and respect. Don't get me wrong, like we, we have some deep differences. That was a couple years ago, and since that time, we have had many more meals together. He'll call me and ask me how my family is doing. I walked into his office this past Tuesday in Sacramento, and in front of his entire staff, he came up and gave me a big hug and told me how much he liked me and appreciated me. You know, you don't have to see eye to eye to work shoulder to shoulder. Sometimes you've got to find those areas where you can agree. And one of the ways in which you express kindness to those with whom you deeply disagree is by listening. Listening while wanting to learn rather than listening while waiting to respond, and there is a difference. And, um, you know, despite our deep differences, um, we found that there's an opportunity to build a friendship. So public enemy number one is now my friend. A friend of mine told me not long ago that you don't lead your enemies to Christ, you lead your friends to Christ. So the first thing you need to do is start making your enemies your friends. I think this is true. And I, I can't tell you in California, it's been three years with no new bills introduced, um, what the future looks like. I'm not a prophet, I don't know. And I work at a nonprofit organization, so there you go. But... As the people of God, we're called to have deep, deep convictions about the trustworthiness of God's word in our life, that firm center, but also the soft edges of loving this world in a radical way that in many ways can be eye-popping, jaw-dropping. Firm center, soft edges, it's not my bumper sticker language, this is actually the gospel. Jesus came full of truth, firm center, and full of grace, soft edges. Not one of each, not half of each, full of 
truth, full of grace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's a firm center. Then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the soft edge. Be wise as serpents, firm center. Be gentle as doves, soft edges. Always be prepared, Peter says, to defend the hope you have, that firm center, but do so with gentleness and respect. Soft edges. Or what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, you have heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And as Christians, when we hear that verse, sometimes we do one or the other. We love, but we don't pray. Or we pray, but we don't love. And when you love, when you don't pray, you form relationships, but you don't long to see the gospel have an impact on that person's life so that they see Christ in you and that is basically prayerless love. And then there's loveless prayer. And that is loving your enemy from a distance by praying for them, but having no proximity, no relationship, and loving demands proximity. Jesus says you love your neighbor and you pray for those who, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And you don't get to pick which verb. And when he says, Love your enemy, he's saying there's two groups. There's your neighbor and your enemy. So neighbor, those you're in community with. Enemy doesn't mean the ones that you're necessarily battling. It means those that you're not in community with. So how does that work for us as God's people? And my hope and prayer is that we as Christians would be seen first as Gracious in our spirits while also being firm in our convictions, known more for what we are for than what we are against. My hope is for the people of faith to be known to love your enemies and pray for those who make life difficult for you. That we love and we pray and love demands relationship. My hope is that I open my life and you open your life, and even your dinner tables, not just figuratively, but but literally to some very unlikely dinner guests. Because I believe the greatest influence lies ahead as we walk this way of Christ-shaped kindness in this increasingly fragmented and skeptical society. Guest chef ministry what you do here home cooked meals homeless shelter those who have no place to live downtown Riverside this is grace that's the first name of Grace Community Church and you're doing it here through grace and action in so many different ways and this is this is our challenge to take God's word seriously this firm center and from this firm center this biblical center, living it out in a way that spills onto the lives of others that, that looks like grace, that looks like kindness. Firm center, the truth that Jesus is Lord of all. And the soft edge is that grace that invites people in. My friend Brian Loritz is a uh, Biola dad, Biola grad, and Biola trustee. This is what he said. He said, we've tried legalism, firm center. And that has proven inept and unattractive. Some are trying a warped form of love that renders us saltless. The only thing that works is a life that embodies grace and truth lived out in relationship with others. I'm about done. Wherever John is, come on up and start playing the guitar, something spiritual, so then we'll just kind of wrap it up here. I believe more than ever in this day and age especially, that we as Christ followers need to be known for radical kindness. Romans chapter two, Paul goes on a little bit of a riff about Christians who are so quick to judge. He says that in Romans two verses one and two and three. And then in verse four, this is what he says. But God's kindness leads to repentance. I need to hear that it's not my judging not my ranting not my complaining not some mean-spirited social media posts that I send out there not some disembodied tweet but it's God's kindness 
that leads to repentance. That's God's kindness through me. And let me tell you, when you act that way, making yourself receivable, living that discipleship life where Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. When you live that way, that, that life to be receivable, not just to be received, sometimes your kindness will be accepted. And sometimes your kindness will be rejected. But I can guarantee you this, your kindness will never be forgotten. Because when you live that way, you plant a seed in someone's life that will one day germinate, maybe long after you're gone from the scene. Because this is what kindness does. You can't love well with a bullhorn in your hands. Kindness is powerful. It has a power to break down these seemingly impenetrable walls. It has a power to restore relationships that you long thought were unsalvageable. Kindness is at the heart of racial reconciliation. Kindness can empower servant leaders. It can bring together families, communities, neighborhoods. I, I think it has that power to bring together nations. And mostly, kindness can lead people to Jesus. And it's why we live this way. It's nothing new for God's people. For centuries now, we've been about feeding the poor and restoring the sick and educating the illiterate and subverting, subverting racism and sheltering the homeless and caring for the marginalized. This is what we do. That 19th century Boston preacher Adniram Judson Gordon said it this way, that our task is not to bring all the world to Christ. Our task is to bring Christ to all the world. And kindness calls us off of our soapboxes into families and workplaces and schools and neighborhoods and cities where we live the life of truth and grace. Where we make ourselves receivable. The reason why we do this is not because it's some hip virtue that's countercultural. We do this because it's what Jesus did for us, right? The most profound moment of kindness in human history was the cross. Sometimes you think of the cross as this like rugged, bloody symbol, but it's where Jesus did something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. Where grace was extended to a worthless me and I had nothing that I could give in return. So in that sense, we're all Mephibosheths. Right? We're all there standing with broken legs and shortcomings and fears and baggage before the king saying like Mephibosheth, how do you even notice a dead dog like me? To which the king replies, no, you're my daughter. You're my son. And you come and you just eat at my table. And maybe this is what you need to hear today. You're feeling Mephibosheth-y, whatever that is. Just feeling like, are you kidding me? I've got nothing to offer. I am so broken, so laden, so crippled. You need to hear words of the king. Jesus says, come on. Come on, eat at my table. Every day, not just today. Same psalmist who said, I will prepare for you a table in the presence of your enemies. He's preparing a table for you. And he invites you to come as unworthy as you are. That's kindness. That's grace. That's what happens to us at the cross where Christ said, you're mine. And there's nothing that you can do to make me love you more. There's nothing that you can do to make me love you less. That I love you, so come on to the table. So if that's what you need to hear today, that there's a table for you. And you can come, as broken as you are. And maybe you've experienced uh, that grace. And if so, live it. Live that unconditional radical sense of kindness by making yourself receivable 
to those who come across your path. Maybe especially those you're thinking about right now. You're thinking like, oh, that's hard. But that's where it's right. Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is what we do. That radical sense of biblical kindness is not being about appreciated. It's being faithful. So just live that way. Even when you might not feel like you're being received. Close with what God's word says is, Dearly beloved children of God, those who I have redeemed, go out into this world and clothe yourselves in kindness. So God, show us what that looks like in our own lives. If we here today need to respond to your call of grace, like Mephibosheth, broken, standing before the king, Help us to limp forward towards that table and put our crooked legs underneath it and eat at the table that you have provided for us, this table of grace, today and every day. And if we have received that grace, Lord, may we go out into this world and be the aroma of Christ. To some will be the smell of life and others we won't be. But may we keep on smelling like Jesus giving off that fragrance of kindness and grace wherever we go. And Lord, stimulate a new This Grace Community Church here in the city of Riverside to be known as the kindest church around. And I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us all to live that way. In Jesus' name.